She's beautiful too. <laughs> You've heard the word of God recited in your hearing. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. As uh, has been said, we're going to focus with God's help this morning on verses 9 to 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, you've landed in the sort of beginning of a new series for us. We are studying the book of Colossians, which we have titled this series, Our Treasures in Christ. Uh, Treasures or riches in Christ is a phrase that Paul uses throughout this letter. And what we want to do as we study this letter is sort of discover and to get our hands into more and more of this treasure that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week we were considering Colossians 1 verses 1 to 8, and this morning we're in Colossians 1 verses 9 to 14, and um, the treasures that we have here, what we wish to see in this text, they come through a praying church. They come through a praying church. In fact, I want to suggest that there are three treasures that we discover in Paul's prayer for the Colossians and that we discover as a consequence of a praying church. Number one, it is the knowledge of God's will. We see that in verses 9 to 10. The knowledge of God's will. Number two, the experience of God's power. The experience of God's power. And number three, the awareness of God's deliverance. The awareness of God's deliverance. Those are the three treasures that Paul prays for the Colossian church and the three treasures that we get to experience and enjoy as we live as a praying church. Let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Lord, what a delight it was to come in this morning and see so many heads bowed and so many people huddled and hands clasped praying to you. We pray to you because you are really there. And we pray to you because you have promised to hear our prayers and to answer. And we pray to you, O Lord, because we are often aware that life is bigger than us, far bigger than us, but not bigger than you. You are the great God who rules all things. And we pray this morning that you would speak to us from the words that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the Colossian church. And that you would help us, O Lord, to run our hands through the treasures that we have in Christ. Open the eyes of our hearts, O Lord. We want to see you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the Greek language, these verses, verses 9 to 14, is one long, complicated sentence. Every once in a while, things get good to the Apostle Paul, and he just starts using commas rather than periods, right? <laughs> he just starts stacking phrases on top of each other. Like, Paul would have never passed my English class. He's run on sentences. But it's this one long, pregnant sentence. And in this sentence, he gives us a number of things that have to do with prayer. And so you see how it starts in verse 9, and so, which refers back to verses 3 to 8. He's given now the consequence of the thanksgiving that he had given in verses 3 to 8, where he was thanking God, really, for the conversion of the Colossian Christians. Uh, Before Epaphras, there had not been a church there. The gospel comes with Epaphras to Colossae, and the Colossians believe. And the evidence of their faith is seen in their faith, hope, and love. 
And Paul now is so mindful of the the miracle and the wonder of anybody believing in Christ and the church being established anywhere that he breaks out in thanksgiving in verses 3 to 8. And following on that thanksgiving, he says, and so, and now he comes to his prayers and says, since we, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, anytime you hear that someone's become a Christian, that a church has been established, that's an occasion to pray. He says, now from the day we heard this news from Epaphras, uh, verse 3, when we remember you in our prayers, from that day we have not ceased to pray for you, continually remembering you before the Lord. He doesn't mean that every waking moment he's on his knees praying only for the Colossians, but that he is in the habit regularly of remembering the Colossians before the Lord and praying continually for the kinds of things that we see in verses 9 to 14. And the first thing he asks on their behalf is that they would know God's will. See there in verse 9? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The apostle keeps asking this for the Colossians. That word filled turns out to be an important word in this letter. As we go through the book of Colossians, we'll see that idea of being filled over and over again. So in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says basically that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ bodily, and we have been filled in him. It could be in the, in the day uh, with these false teachers in Colossae, they were sort of teaching that, yeah, there's Jesus, but then you need to be filled with something else. And so Paul keeps coming back to this idea. No, you have fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he wants you to know that in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. How many times as Christians we have wanted to know God's will for our lives? And the preciousness of knowing God's will is suggested to us through the trouble and the uncertainty we feel when we don't know it. When we don't know God's will for our lives, then we're reminded of how important his will is, aren't we? And so Paul says, I I pray that you would be filled with this knowledge, that you would possess this knowledge in, in full measure. And he wants them to know it in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You see that there? Now, he's not concerned with carnal, worldly wisdom, but in that wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God. He's concerned about spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, wisdom here has to do with discernment, knowing how to apply God's will to our lives. And understanding has to do with knowing how a thing works. So uh, he's not interested in just that they know some Bible facts, right? But they know actually how to live those facts out. They know actually how to apply those facts to their lives. They know how to walk in God's will with with understanding, knowing the, the ways of God and the mind of God intimately. So he says in Colossians 4 verse 5, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of time. That's the kind of idea, that they would live wisely with regard to everyone with understanding that comes from the spirit of the will of God. He wants them to notice verse 10. This all has a purpose. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
When Paul says he wants them to walk in this knowledge and to walk according to the will of God, he doesn't mean that Christians have a special way of putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not talking about a literal walk as if Christians got this kind of Christian pimp and swagger. It's, it's not what he means. That the walk is a, a metaphor for the whole conduct of our lives, the whole pattern of our lives. He says, I want your lifestyle to sort of be worthy of the Lord. To fit the nature of the Lord, the character of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord, the, the greatness of the Lord, to fit the honor of the Lord's name. That if you are known as a Christian, if you are known by Christ's name, then your life ought to reflect the worthiness of Christ's name. That's the purpose of knowing God's will, so that you can walk in it. Well, notice now, what he says there, how he defines what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He gives us those three clauses that follow from there. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The Christian does not live to please himself. The Christian doesn't live to please herself. The Christian does not live to please others. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, talking about his own ministry, says, basically, do I please God or man? And he says, if I seek to please man, then I am not serving Christ. Those two things are just chalk and cheese, oil and water. They don't go together. You can't live in such a way as to try to please man and expect to please God. You will fail at many points. But the Christian now is meant to please God. The, the one we seek to please is the one who really rules over our life. And so we want to be fully pleasing to him. In other words, we want God's heart happily satisfied with our lives. And so we want to know God's will so that we can live in this way, which brings him pleasure. Well, how's that defined? How do we know when we're doing that? Well, Paul says here, you'll be bearing fruit in every good work. A life lived in a man of the Lord, worthy of the Lord, also produces fruit, the fruit of good work. Now, this means the church does all kinds of good and righteous and pure things as it lives for the Lord. Now let's be careful here. It does not mean every individual is responsible to do every good work. Paul's writing to the church collectively. He's praying for the whole of the church here. It means that the entire church collectively lives in such a way that they are producing all kinds of good work. Church communities are to be places where a thousand flowers bloom, to use the cliche. So, our sister Nicole Noyes, she serves faithfully volunteering here at the high school for their concessions stands during their sporting events. And because of her faithful service, there are people here at the high school who regard this church as a particularly good and supportive church to this school. Or consider the teams of people who've been going out to evangelize on the weekends. Went out yesterday with Jeremy to, to pass out invitations to the church plant meeting today and went out uh, gathered also yesterday and prayed at the Richards homes and went out block to block and door to door the week before. They're bearing fruit in every good work. Yet not all of us went with them. Or our sister Miss Carol. Sir, so faithfully at the back door, greets you, loves on you, even spanks you if she has to. 
Like she did with me this morning. (laughs) It's just quietly visiting elders in their homes and their community centers. And one or two of us have perhaps gone with her, but she's just quietly bearing fruit, serving the elderly in our community. Or our sister Lysandra, singing this morning in praise team. Her, even her calling, and many of you, your callings are vocations that bear fruit worthy of the Lord. So she works to end domestic violence. What a wonderful calling to give your life to. See, it says we do these things more and more that our entire church family bears fruit in every good work. And as we do so, together we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So this prayer here isn't that each and every Colossian Christian would be doing each and every good work, but that we'd all find our lane and we bear fruit in that lane. And that together what we do is multiplied. It's bigger. And then he prays the third thing. That walking in a manner that's fully pleasing to the Lord or worthy of the Lord's name is to increase in the knowledge of God. Now think about this, beloved. It does not please God to make himself known in creation, to speak to us specifically in his word, and to reveal his love in the cross of his son, to only have his people, when it comes to knowing him, kind of go, eh, and express indifference or boredom. No. It pleases God to have his people increase in the knowledge of him. God through Christ has brought us into a personal relationship with him, which which means God is not interested in being known merely intellectually or or having a few Bible facts in our heads. No, God is not seeking his people mere head knowledge and the kind of theology that puffs up. Some people are bookish, and just by the fact that they're bookish, they think they know God. No, God seeks in his people true personal increasing knowledge that creates intimacy and trust. God delights to be known. So write this text down. Maybe look at it later. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. There God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and he says these words, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, relationships require investment. Relationships require time and attention. In order to grow in our knowledge of someone, we have to talk to them. We have to listen to them. We have to do things together, spend leisurely time and purposeful time. We have to reflect on who they are and what we're sort of discovering of them. And the Christian who would please God God does all of that with God. We listen to him and talk to him. We spend time with him. We reflect on who he is and we reflect on his ways. And then by God's grace, we increase in the personal knowledge and communion of God. And this is the remarkable thing. It's not just that we are pleased as we get to know God, but God is pleased as we get to know him. The purpose of knowing God's will is to do God's will. 
We don't want to be like those who look into God's will and fail to do it. Like that man James talks about in James 1. That man who looks in the mirror, sees his reflection, then turns away and forgets what he saw. We don't want to look into the law of God's word and the mirror of God's word and, and then walk away from it and forget it. But rather we want to know it that we might do it. And that's part of the treasure of a praying church. By his prayers, Paul means to help the Colossians grow in the knowledge of God's will, to live in that will, and to please him. So how do we apply this? Well, first of all, let us, let's pray the gospel would bear fruit in each other. I wonder if you notice that verse 10 kind of parallels verse 6. You see back in verse 6 where Paul says that the gospel has come into the world and it is bearing fruit and increasing? And notice how that shapes Paul's prayer in verse 10. The first thing he prays for them is that they might have the knowledge of God's will and that part of that would mean that they would also bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. So in other words, Paul says, I see the gospel working in you in this way. I'm going to pray for more of the gospel's good work in your life. And that's a good pattern for us as we pray for our own church and pray for other churches. Let's pray that the gospel would do exactly what the gospel sends it to do. That it would bear fruit and that it would increase. And that would be reflected in the whole of the body and in each individual that we know and worship with. And let's pray, secondly, for a heart to obey, to obey God. It's critical that we pray for each other to know God's will if we want to please God. But it's also critical that we pray for each other that we have hearts to obey it. For that's where the pleasing starts to happen. I mean, the ability of the church to pleasingly live according to God's will is the result of the church praying to not only know God's will, but to actually do it when we know it. Let's resolve to obey no matter what the word says. Let's resolve to submit to God's superior wisdom. For every time we come to know God's will and decide not to do it, somewhere in there is this sneaking sinful thought that we know better than God. But God's ways are higher than ours. It's above ours. So we have good reason, even before we come to know his will, to pray for a heart ready to do his will. There's a third thing. Let's seek, let's seek God's will in his word. Let's seek his will in his word. When Paul writes that he prays for them to know God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, I don't think he's being kind of spooky here. I don't think he's sort of saying, you know, I hope that when you go outside today, God will write in the clouds his word for you. You know, he's not looking out for some mystical experience, right? He's he's not praying that we would have some unusual uh, spiritual encounter, though that's certainly possible. I think the best way to know God's will is through God's word. So here's, here's the exercise for you. Any of you who want to know God's will, whether that's a pressing concern right now or whether you think, ah, I should, I should just be thinking about God's will all the time. Here's an exercise for you. I want you to do a search on your phone or whatever you use uh, to study the Bible with. If, you've got a, if you're old school like me and you've got a, um, a concordance, whatever you use, I want you to do a search for two phrases, two phrases, God's will and the will of God. Put them in quotes. And search them. You're going to get about 23 hits back. Five of them will be Paul saying, I'm an apostle by the will of God. 
right? So you can just sort of put those aside for a moment. And what I want you to do is to look at the other 18 and consider what it says there. Maybe organize them and summarize them. You're going to find some statements in there that are really quite profound. For example, when Jesus says in the gospel that those who do the will of his father are his mothers and brothers and sisters. Or, or you're going to find some very straightforward statements like this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God for you. I love it when God makes it plain. <laughs> this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you know how to possess your bodies and not live like the heathens live. And I, and I just want you to spend some time a day, take you maybe an hour, and meditate on God's will. And what you're going to get is a kind of um, sort of shape, at least a broad outline of God's specific will for all of us revealed in his word, which we are meant to know and to obey. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's pray that we would know God's will. And knowing God's will should lead us to please God, serve God, and know God. And that's one of the treasures we have in a praying church. Here's a second one. The second treasure is the experience of God's power. The experience of God's power. That's Paul's second request there beginning in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul's prayer that they may be strengthened with all power, again, is not a prayer for worldly power. The apostle does not have in mind here political power or economic power or cultural power. The apostle remains spiritually minded. He, he wants the Colossians strengthened with spiritual power. And all power here might be translated this way, strengthened by God with the greatest strength imaginable. So here's not talking about kinds of power, political or governmental and so on. He's talking about a degree of power. Once you strengthen with all power, the greatest imaginable strength. About this time that Paul writes a letter to Colossians, he also writes a letter to the Ephesians. And both of those letters have similar themes. And in Ephesians, we find a text that helps us understand what Paul means here. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 16. Paul writes there, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches in glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the power he's talking about. The Holy Spirit coming into the believer's life, strengthening us inwardly, even as the outward man passes and fades away. That's what he wants for us. That's what he wants for the Colossian church. And, and it's the case, beloved, is it not that the Christian church is often searching for the wrong kinds of power? The church looks for governmental power. The church looks for economic power. The church looks for social influence. But we have available and should want the greatest imaginable power and strength from God which comes by his spirit, which lives in us. It's another statement Paul makes in Ephesians, which just staggers the mind. Paul prays for the Ephesians and he says, basically, he wants this power to work in them, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's the power at work in us who believe. And there's a goal to this. 
Just as the first request for wisdom had a goal, Paul tells us why he prays for strength. It's not simply that the Colossian church would be strong, but he asks, notice there, for this strength, for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance means the ability to keep going, especially when situations and circumstances are hard. Beloved, how many of you know that life sometimes gets hard? Endurance means to bear up under those difficult circumstances. And this is the thing. We can only endure or keep going because of the strength that God supplies. Patience. It's closely related to endurance, but it has more to do with our attitude of heart and our our frame of mind. So patience refers to the, the capacity to accept or to tolerate delay or trouble or suffering without getting upset or angry, or rash. Let me give you that again, right? Patience is the ability to keep going without, in the midst of delay, or trouble, or suffering, without, without becoming upset, or angry, or rash. So some some commentators say the first word, endurance, has to do with the way we bear up under circumstances. The second word, patience, has to do with how we put up with difficult people. And we're to do all of this with joy instead of enduring with impatience. And you know you can do that, right? You can endure with impatience, grumbling, complaining, murmuring. Isn't that what Israel does with God in the wilderness? Yeah, they, they, they are marching for 40 years, but they're unhappy the whole time. God would have us not only uh, have his strength, but have it so that we might endure and we might be patient with joy. That we might be happy in every circumstance. Can you imagine that kind of strength? Can you imagine having the kind of spiritual power that comes from God that even though things are out of control, you find yourself pressing on, waiting on God, and filled with joy. When we have God's power, we have these graces, too, of endurance, patience, and joy. Think about it. How many of the Christian church's failures do you think go back to a prior failure to ask for strength from God? We have not because we ask not. And because of the failure to pray for strength from God, how how often have churches quit too soon? Have Christians quit too soon? Have we grown impatient or angry or joyless? God forbid that the Christian church should become a community of joyless people with long faces. Reminds me of a story that uh, William McKenzie, Scottish brother, is a publisher in Scotland, told once, a little boy riding in the back of the car uh, with, his, with his grandfather and they're driving through the hills of Scotland where there are lots of sheep foals and different things and they come up on the border of town and, and a little boy sees a, a donkey on the side of the road and says to his dad from the back seat, Dad, that donkey's a Christian. Grandfather says, no, 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 what do you mean? Your donkey can't be a Christian. Uh-huh, that donkey's a Christian. He says, son, what are you talking about? You know, donkeys can't be Christian. And so he drives along a few minutes and he thought, I should ask him. He said, what do you mean that donkey's a Christian? He said, he had a long face. (laughs) Some of y'all will get that on the way home. 
There are people who think that to be a Christian is to be this always sad, dour kind of person. And there are some people whose experience with the Christian church is only bumping into unhappy people. Listen, beloved, unhappy is not a synonym with holy. Right? You can be happy and holy. In fact, the way to happiness is holiness. Right? And, and so think about it. How, how often have we, have we become impatient and joyless and, and angry because we have not prayed to God for strength? Because we have not asked him for his power and his might. And this is critical in every age of the church. Francis Schaeffer was an, an apologist, a, a defender of the Christian faith who taught and wrote so much about how Christians ought to engage with the, the unbelieving society. He, he wrote in one of his books this paragraph. Follow along with me. He says, the central underscore, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus that surrounds us. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the power of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. I wonder if you agree with Schaefer that the central problem facing the church is this tendency to try to do God's work in our flesh, in our own strength, rather than in the power of God through his spirit. John Sutcliffe was a pastor in England, a Baptist pastor in England in the 18th century. He was good friends with men like Andrew Fuller and Mr. Carey, who started the modern missions movement in England. And they were all used in that day in the 18th century as, as, as workers of God to bring revival to that land. And Mr. Sutcliffe in particular was famed among them for his emphasis on prayer. Mr. Sutcliffe once preached this. He says uh, essentially that all of the Christian life, let me find this, a life of faith will ever be a life of prayer. And he called pastors and denominations and associations to gather together for what they called concerts of prayer as God was pleased to give revival to that land. Andrew Fuller uh, visited Sutcliffe on his deathbed in the early 1800s. And he sat with his friend as his friend was dying and talked with him. And Sutcliffe, though he is known as a man of prayer, made this confession. He said, I wish I had prayed more. Fuller couldn't fathom what he meant by that. So he'd observed this man praying constantly. And Fuller thought a long time on what what Sutcliffe must have meant. And finally, Fuller arrived at this conclusion that, that Sutcliffe did not mean that he wished he had prayed more frequently, but that he had prayed more spiritually. And so Fuller wrote this in application to his own life. I wish I had prayed more for the influence of the Holy Spirit. I might have enjoyed more of the power of vital godliness. I wish I had prayed more for the assistance of the Holy Spirit in studying and preaching my sermons. I might have seen more of the blessing of God attending my ministry. I wish I had prayed more for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to attend the labors of our our friends on the mission field. I I might have witnessed more of the effects of their efforts in the conversion of the nations. I wonder... How many of us can say this morning, I wish I had prayed more?
I wonder how many of us this morning can ask God to give us strength to pray more spiritually and fervently that we might know his power. See, that's the value of hearing a comment like this in a sermon while you're still alive and not on your deathbed. It becomes an invitation not to regret. It becomes an invitation to opportunity, to commit to pray, to ask God for his strength, for, for, to, to, to strengthen us in the inward man and to give us the ability to press into spiritual things with a spiritual mind in the hopes of his power abiding on us. In a room this size, I'm sure there's some people who feel weak. So weak, you feel tempted not to pray. Oh, I, I want you to consider your weakness God's very real invitation to forget your strength and to ask him for his. Oh, the prayer could be very simple, beloved. Lord, help me. It's the best prayer in the Bible. And God stands ready to give his strength. We, we know this. We have confidence in this because the Lord says things like this in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What? And then he makes this promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, I think the logical conclusion is this. The Lord who has all power in his hand, who also promised to always be with us, is inclined to give us the power that we ask for. This is a very reasonable thing for Paul to pray. This is not even a hard thing for Paul to pray in light of who Jesus is to his people. We can pray this, beloved, with full confidence and expectation that the power we need will indeed come from God. That he will supply it according to his glorious might. And that we will not be without strength in our time of need. For Christ will be bearing us up and holding us up and delivering us according to his will. A church that prays for God's strength for itself and other churches is a great treasure in Christ. Number three, here's the third treasure. Awareness of God's deliverance. That's what we see in verses 12 to 14. And Paul there in prayer says, he has given thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share, into, into, and share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. English translations again break up verses 12 and 13 by making them two different sentences. They do this for the ease of understanding of, of English readers. But as we said before, the entire paragraph is, is one long sentence in the original. So Paul doesn't stop praying in verse 13, and start speaking prosaically to the Colossians, he's still relaying to the Colossian Christians what he prays for them. And he's praying in light of their deliverance or their, their salvation. So notice there, Paul, first of all, thanks God, and he, he wants the Colossians to thank God the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance in the sons of light. And reach there for that family language again. The Father. He wants us thinking about God not, not in a sort of the, the awesome, transcendent, glorious way that we will think about God, but the, the intimate, tender, familial way that this God has qualified his children to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That word inheritance picks up on an Old Testament theme, doesn't it? 
where in the Old Testament, God promised Israel the promised land as their inheritance. And then you recall that he promised to the priests that they wouldn't have any part of the land because he would be their inheritance. And so we're not surprised when we come to verses 13 and 14, we, ha- we see words there like deliverance, which remind us of, of the exodus of Israel, how God delivered his people uh, from their slavery, their bondage in Egypt. So in other words, Paul pictures the, the salvation of the Colossian church as spiritually parallel and fulfilling all the deliverances and all the inheritances that are sort of promised in the Old Testament and are fulfilled in Christ. All God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ, in his salvation. And this is why Paul thanks the Father and uses that, that tender language. And, and, and he says here, our loving heavenly dad has, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. That word qualified means to, to make sufficient. Paul uses that word in, over in Second uh, uh, Corinthians, I think it is, where he talks about his own ministry. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? And then he resolves that our sufficiency comes from God. It's the same word there and the same idea. We, we use the idea when we go to banks, don't we? Go to bank, want to buy a house, want to buy a car. Oh, you got to get qualified, don't you? They got to check your income, got to check your debt, uh, and see whether or not your income, your resources are sufficient for purchasing uh, that property. That's almost the idea. It's not quite that we've gone to the bank it's actually that we've gone to the social service agency. Well, they're not qualifying us there to see if we have resources to make it on our own. They're actually looking to see if we have too little resources to make it. So to qualify there means you don't have enough to live on. And the sufficiency comes from what they supply then to cover the gap between, say, your income and your housing need or your income and your grocery need. So we have gone to God or appeared before God, and God has looked at us and said, check the list, sinner, (laughs) powerless, can't be righteous. And he's like, yep, you fall short of the glory of God. And then God says, I will qualify you by supplying by my grace all that you lack in Jesus Christ, my son. He becomes our righteousness. He takes away our sin. He pays the penalty. He pays the debt for our sin. And so God qualifies us in Jesus, his son. Beloved, every Christian you meet is on government assistance. (laughs) Every Christian you meet is on government assistance. It's the government of heaven who has looked at us in our need and supplied for us. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. God sends his son into the world to be our righteousness and to die on the cross for our sins, to pay our debt. When God raises him from the grave three days later and in that resurrection is if if God is saying, my son has co-signed to qualify you for my inheritance. Because of what Christ has done and faith in him, all that is God's, all that is Christ's, becomes ours. Riches we could never have paid for, we could never have worked for, given to us through the sinless Son of God, our Savior. This is the gospel. Jesus has done it all. We simply need to repent of sin and in faith follow him as our Lord. 
Notice what happens. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that there's a move that then takes place. God made a transfer. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness refers to Satan's control through the rule of sin. The whole world apart from Jesus Christ lives in this darkness. And all of us did too. The word delivered suggests that we were prisoners there. We were held captive in that domain, trapped by the spiritual forces of darkness. We were slaves to sin and blinded by the God of this age, the Bible tells us. But God delivered us from that domain. The Father transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. When God gave us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he brought us into a new kingdom where Jesus rules. As verse 14 says, it is in him, in Jesus, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, to be in the kingdom of God's Son is to be in the Son himself by faith. You see, that that redemption is in him. That forgiveness is in him. And when by faith we are joined to Christ and we are therefore in Christ, all of that redemption, all of that forgiveness, the entirety of God's kingdom is ours. We are bought back, that is redeemed, and we are washed clean, that is forgiven. Christian, your old life of darkness is over. Your address has changed. God has moved you. You live in an entirely different country, an entirely different realm or kingdom now. We've had our citizenship transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what your passport says now. Because we belong to this new kingdom, we have a new king, the son of God himself, which means we are free now to serve Jesus. My Christian friend, be assured Be confident of God's love for you personally. Notice all the verbs of verse 13 and 14. He has delivered you, past tense. He transferred you, past tense. It's already completed. Now all that's left for the Christian to do is enjoy it, to delight in it. Let us remind ourselves constantly that we belong to this kingdom and to this God and that his forgiveness truly is ours now. And we'll see it fully then when the king comes again. So let us be a treasure to each other by praying these things for one another, that we would be a church full of people aware of the redemption that Christ has accomplished for us. It's so easy to forget this, beloved. It's so easy to go into every day and to live every day as if Christ has not snatched you from darkness and brought you into the light. It's so easy to go to work and to get bothered with people at work and to be in your flesh at work and, and living like everybody else at work, forgetting that you, you, you don't, you, this domain of darkness doesn't rule you, but the Son of God does. Isn't it easy to forget this in parenting? If you don't think so, let me loan you my kids. They're great kids. How often in correcting a parent, look at him yawning, how often in correcting a a child or encouraging them or addressing them, we find ourselves exasperated, impatient, yelling, sometimes even disciplining out of anger. We have to remember 
That we don't parent as if we live in the world of darkness. We parent as those who live in the light and we come back to our children. We confess and we ask forgiveness, don't we? Oh, in so many ways we can forget this. And this is why it's a treasure for the church to pray that we would be in remembrance constantly of what God has done for us. Let me apply this also to the backslider. The truth here speaks to you too. If that's you, do not make the mistake of taking these verses as a kind of get out of judgment free card. This is not spiritually monopoly. You have not by happenstance landed on some square that gives you a free pass. This is far more serious than perhaps you think. Consider the use of light and darkness in these couple of verses. Light and darkness cannot coexist. So so we have no right to think that we have the inheritance of the saints in light if we continue to live in the domain of darkness. So those of you who would consider yourselves backsliders and, and those of you who quietly live double lives, well, beloved, you had better take stock of your condition. You certainly are not deceiving God. You may be deceiving yourself. You may even be deceiving the church. But the God who sees all and knows all and the God who is perfect in his judgment and righteousness, well, he will not be mocked and he will not be fooled. And he has graciously spoken to you not to fool yourself. So in the words of 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 8, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, the God who is light, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So this matter of light and dark is a matter of death and life. God calls you to choose life and to walk in the light where his son is. If you find yourself entangled with sin, Don't try to be a superhero and do it in your own strength. You need the church to pray that you would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. And you need the church to walk with you to help you to get disentangled from that sin that so easily besets. And you need the church to receive the spiritual assurance that comes from people praying for you and helping you. And you need to sort of taste and see that not only is the Lord good, but so is this church when it comes to defeating sin. So continue your backsliding no longer. Live a double life no longer. Come into the light where there's grace. And as we conclude, just to say to my friends here this morning who are not yet Christians, let me ask you this question. Would you pass up all of heaven for a little piece of darkness? The thing about darkness, beloved, is it prevents you from seeing clearly. You're in the dark and you think you have some treasure in your hands. And all the while in the darkness, not seeing clearly, that's what you imagine it to be. A handful of gold, a, a silver statuette, some pleasing thing. But the light of God in the face of Christ has come into the world. And that light will shine on us at one of two times. 
It will light a shine on us as we hear the gospel and believe the gospel and, and we begin to see by that light and so are saved. Or it will shine on us on that final day in God's judgment. Beloved, you don't want the light to be turned on at the day of judgment. To see that what's in your hand is not a treasure but a devil. To see that what's in your hand is not something that delights your soul or delights God but displeases God and destroys your soul. To find out the thing that you've most been coddling and treasuring like Gollum is something that's been destroying you. You are precious. It may not be God, it may be an idol. And it may be sucking your soul dry. No, beloved, you want the light of the gospel to shine on your life now. You want to see life through the light of God. And you want to interpret life through his word. And what his word basically tells us all, every creature, is we must flee our sin, confess it for what it is, turn to God, and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our savior, and walk with him. Then we will be walking in that light. Then we will be living in a manner that pleases God. Then our life will be unending, eternal, in his love and glory. A, pray, a praying church is a great treasure to the Christian. By the prayers of the saints, we gain wisdom, strength, and thanksgiving. By the prayers of the saints, we learn to please God, to endure with joy, and to delight in our salvation. Let it be the case that we're not a church that prays only because the pastor was late. Let it be the case that we're a church who prays constantly for each other and for other churches that we might know the power of God in our own day. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for this privilege of prayer. Such a wonder, so often neglected. I know in my own life, Father, it's a constant battle to press into your presence in prayer and to linger there. And so I need and pray for my own prayer life just as I pray for the prayer lives of all these your people. Although we praise you that you are pleased to take the feeble requests of weak people and to use those requests to deliver the great power of your omnipotence. Oh Lord, this morning someone is struggling to endure and they need your strength. Would you supply it? Someone's struggling to know your will in this or that situation. Oh Father, would you give them the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they may walk in a manner worthy of you. Oh Lord, this morning someone's struggling with thanksgiving. And that struggle is connected to their forgetting that you have delivered them and saved them and transferred them into the kingdom of your son. Remind them of what you have done for them. And in reminding them of what you have done for them, let their hearts be set free. Let their hearts uh, raise toward the heavens and let thanksgiving explode from their souls, we pray. Oh God, you know what we have need of, even if we don't. And so we pray to you and ask, Oh Lord, please supply according to your riches and glory. Make us a praying church and by our prayers do your will and show your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.